innovation and education. I'm your host, David Adams, CEO of the Urban Assembly. And on this show, we bring guests every single episode who have made things work in public education. This show is about the innovators. This show is about the folks who are solving problems. This show is about making things work in education. Now, there's a lot of shows out there talking about what's wrong in the education systems, and those are great shows. There's some shows talking about what we're not doing well, and there's a lot to learn from those, but that's not this show. This show is going to be featuring educators who are making things work for young people and improving public education. Well, good morning, everybody. I am David Adams, and I'm here with Trey Gamage, the host of the Dash podcast since 2017. Trey is also a social and emotional learning specialist focused on building social and emotional competence in school communities by focusing on adults' emotional skills. Trey, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Man, I've admired you and your work for literally years. And so it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to come back and flip roles a little bit and be a guest on your illustrious podcast. Usually it's you interviewing me. Now I get this opportunity to interview you and learn a little bit about your educational journey, your impact on public education, and what you're thinking about in terms of innovations for the future. I'm looking forward to it, David. It's going to be an exciting conversation. Well, you know, before we look forward, we got to look past. So I know some of your K-12 time has been at the South Carolina School for Science and Mathematics. I'm going to turn it over to you. What did you learn about education and yourself in this space? And how do you apply it to the work that you do in 2023? Man, David, I'll go back a little bit before that. My last semester of college, I studied abroad in Europe for Luxembourg. I was out there for 16 weeks, went to 14 countries. And that meant I didn't get to look for a job. So when I came back and even while I was over there, I had a psychology background and I just reached out to one of my mentors and all of the jobs that he listed were in education. So the South Carolina Governor School was a residential high school where I had an opportunity to live with 400 students, supervise 12 RAs, and I was pretty much a dorm director. So I lived on campus with those students for two years, some of the brightest students in the state, children of dignitary, really affluent really prodigious, really the brightest kids academically in the state. And for me, it was a wonderful opportunity to really learn about SEL and the soft skills. So a big thing for me was developing the co-curricular development model. And that's where I had an opportunity to take these kids. You know, it wasn't a hugely diverse school as far as race, but they were diverse in terms of background. And we would have conversations about albums like Kendrick Lamar's to Pippa Butterfly. We would talk about different cultures. We would talk about developing your mind, working out. And we developed these processes to help the kids be less stressed because they were taking, I had a girl, she was a senior to take a 16th century Spanish literature as an independent study as mm. a senior. And so they were just so academically inclined and focused that my role was to help them cultivate themselves and be better in themselves, which for me, I didn't even know what SEL was at the time, but I understood that there was more to life than education and living with Generation Z. This was like early Gen Zers graduating. I really got to see who they were and some of the gaps in communication and inspiration and motivation that some of their teachers who may skip a generation were not able to see. So it was really cool to bridge that gap and then put some things in action to let the students practice skills beyond the classroom. Well, before we talk about those things in action, I want to take it back to living with your students, right? Like 24 hours a day. So yeah. oh God, your students. you went to bed, your students, you went to lunch, your students. Talk yeah. a little bit more about how that shaped your understanding of what it means to be an educator. When you're seeing your students all the time in many different yeah. contexts, 
100%. So I learned early in that process that I felt like my gift that I had was being able to understand the generation older than me. I'm a millennial, but could understand the language of Gen X and the baby boomers because of my older relationships. But where I saw a gap for the Gen Zers, that was a gap that I was able to bridge. I could understand what was trying to be said and then interpret it to the kids what they were actually trying to say and do. So living with those kids, you know, as smart as they were, as focused as they were, they still struggled with some soft skills and that stress and anxiety. I'll say this, of the 400 students on campus, probably 70% had some kind of anxiety, depression, something that they were dealing with that came from high stress situations. So for me, it became so much more about, hey, you know what? Everybody else is going to take care of academics. I'm going to take care of you, the person first. And that was probably the greatest takeaway and the biggest level of learning that I had from living with them too. Well, let's go back to this notion of anxiety, depression, and stress, right? We know coming out of the pandemic, we've seen unprecedented levels of students who are really struggling with anxiety, depression, loss of connection. Help me think through the relationship between social bonds that you were talking about, our ability to be in community, and the formation of the kinds of resilience that allows our academic and social emotional competence to shine through in everyday life as well as in schools. Great question, David. For me, one of my models that I live by is to bridge the gap. And for me, I saw that chance to bridge the gap with the kids. And I've always been really interested in teaching everything that's not academic. I want to talk about college and career. I want to talk about well-being. I want to talk about mental health. Everybody else is focused on academics. Obviously, it's necessary. I just don't think that's the only solution because you can have all the grades, but the studies from UC Berkeley and Castle show that your success is primarily dependent upon your emotional intelligence or your SEL skills personally and professionally. And so I didn't know that at the time, but there was a feeling in me that made me feel like these kids need more than 16th century Spanish literature, physics three, and these PhD level classes that they're taking to become well-rounded and successful individuals. Well, it's interesting you talk about that because one of the things I did for a very long time was I was a camp counselor. I was a camp counselor at Camp Spears YMCA. And I feel like that's a similar experience where you're just like with your kids yeah. all yeah. the time, right? You sleep with them, you breathe with them, you, you, you eat with them, you go to mm-hmm. the pool with them. And so you really get a sense of like who the kids are. And now it's a little different, I think, in the context of a camp, because that's really the point, right? You're like, you're yeah. just this child's sense of values and who they are. But in schools, in these residential schools, it's still this kind of mix because you, you have your academics, but there's such mm-hmm. a focus on the child and the person themselves. Tell me a little bit more about what attracts you to that residential status. Because I heard you say Illinois, South Carolina, that was your jam. Yeah, yeah. So I mentioned that I studied abroad my last semester in college, and that was the biggest self-help time for me. So I spent four months listening to Les Brown, Zig Ziglar, Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, Og Mandino, literally absorbing and downloading this content, posting motivational things and being inspired because I was in Europe with nothing but my own mind and my own thoughts. So I had tremendous clarity when I came back. Part of that too, I heard somebody say, get a job that pays you the most, that you have to do the least until you figure out what you want to do. I had a psychology background, but I was not interested in getting a PhD. That was too much time in school. And I knew that most people get their jobs based on who they know. So I reached out to who I knew and I saw what jobs were available. 
And I always knew I loved kids, probably from high school. I've just had a different connection with youth and an ability to really bridge gaps between generations and understand Gen X and baby boomers and even the silent or lost generation. And at the same time, understand Gen Z. And I'm a millennial myself. So that generational communication really did attract me to it. And then the opportunity to, as I was in Europe, I'm from Indiana, in South Carolina, I got to continue making the world be flat. So I didn't have any family down here. And mm-hmm. it was more so inspired. It was more so motivation to find out who am I and what's going to be my role in this world? How am I going to truly make an impact on people? And so coming down here to supervise college students, 12 of them, two directly reported to me, to live with these kids, I knew that that was going to be a dramatic opportunity for me to learn more about what I wanted to do next in life. And I knew that the kids are something that I've always loved and always wanted to work with. And I knew that getting away from home was something that was going to allow me to continue to maximize my capacity and find my skill set without some of those distractions of you know, being home and around the people that you love, which is wonderful, but may also distract you from the ultimate goal that you're trying to attain. So give me a takeaway here. Spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week with kids, what should our listeners know about mm. that experience in terms of what it means to be an educator? Oh, man, spending that much time with the kids, you can't take stuff personal, David. And personally, I find a lot of similarities in working with adults and working with students because some of the awareness or lack thereof is as prevalent as in adults as it is in students. But living with them, you learn that the kids are kids. You know, if they are, I'm talking Trump's cabinet people in my school, I'm talking state delegates, I'm talking true, real wealth. And these kids were no different than when I left that school. I worked at a public charter school down a dirt road in modular campuses on a modular buildings. And there wasn't much of a difference between those kids. So it wasn't a black and white thing. It's not an affluent or impoverished thing. Kids are kids. And we have to give them the language. We have to give them the skills to understand you got to work on yourself and develop yourself if you want to be successful outside these walls. And my thing too, David, you're going to get me on the soapbox here. After high school and after college, you know, life is kind of set up in these chunks. You got four years in high school, four years in college. After that, you on your own for the rest of your life. And one of my favorite people, Les Brown, says some people choose to live the same year 75 times and call it a life. Mm. I know people that are 55 years old that's been telling me they want to update their resume and get a new job for 15 years. Mm -mm. I'm saying that hurts me. That pains me, David. I'm talking about family members and friends to see folks stay stuck for 20, 40, 60 years in the same place and never reach a potential. That hurts. That hurts me a lot. And so if I can have an opportunity to plant those seeds in the kids while they're in high school, the same way folks did to me, if I can give an opportunity to talk with them outside of academics and check on them, how are mm-hmm. you? How's your mom? How's your mentals? Oh, you just had a breakup with your girlfriend? Like, talk to me about it. Right. And just give them those little seeds of advice because it's hard. Mm-hmm. And if you don't learn those things when you're young, it gets really hard to put them in place as an adult. Well, I know you are not a man who needs to live one life 75 times. Uh, you, you're a man on the move. And one of the ways that we met each other was through your podcast, The Dash Podcast. So as opposed to the story you just told, where folks really need some inspiration to take a chance, to move mm-hmm. out of that rut, you just went ahead and went for it. So tell me, where does The Dash Podcast come from? What made you start it? What are your ambitions for the work moving forward? The Dash started as an opportunity to add value consistently for free. 
that's it. That was the framework. And I mentioned that I went to Toastmasters and I joined this world championship of public speaking, finished in the top 100 in the world, competed against the champions of Turkey, Mexico, Japan, California, mm. New York. And I lost, David. Mm. I lost. But in my head, you win or you learn. A failure is your first attempt in learning. I lost that round against the top 100 speakers in the world, over 143 countries. I didn't feel bad. I was like, wow, these people are great. And me losing doesn't say much about me. You know what I'm saying? That They were just better today. They performed better, whatever the case was. And so that humbled me to a place to say, okay, I'm too focused on me right now. I mm. wanted to win this world championship so I could go and speak, so I could go and travel, so I can go and impact. But if I flip that, I was trying to be the solution, but didn't necessarily look at the problem yet. When I flipped it, I said, okay, how can I really add value? Because I mm -hmm. felt like, David, that I gave a speech that, in my mind, it was perfect. It was the best and the worst speech I'd given at the same time. It was so well-crafted. I had worked on it for about six months that I delivered wow. it exactly how I wanted to, a five to seven minute speech. At the same time, I crafted that speech so well, David, that I felt like I lost myself in it. And yeah. I took some authenticity out of it. It wasn't all of the truth, you know, and... I thought that moving forward, I wanted to tell the full story. Somebody told me in that process that the story you're afraid to tell is the one that people need to hear. Mm -hmm. And so the podcast, I made a couple of video series trying to add value and just share the knowledge that I learned from the hundreds of books that I had read while I was abroad and stuff. And then after I did a couple of those video series, I said, okay, let's make a podcast, man. And, and Another piece of advice, my father told me to build my resume until I was 30. And so mm -hmm. 22, 23 at the time, I'm just trying stuff, David. I'm just trying to figure it out, really find myself. What am I the best at? How mm. can I really make an impact? And that's where the podcast came from. So the first 60, 72 episodes were just that. It was me talking to people about what is your passion, which is what are you willing to suffer for? That's the root word of passion. I got you. What is your purpose? So all the educators, if you're passionate about education, that means you're willing to suffer through the things that we have to go through to get there. Talk to me about your purpose. This is your reason for doing or reflection on your own life and then transition into the person that you want to become or the how, the process of becoming. So it was like a three-layer acronym that I call ART, awareness, reflection, transition. And when we do that, you begin to inspire special things, I-S-T or inspired storytelling. Awareness, reflection, transition. Yep. And then inspire special things. And then when you follow that method, you become an artist. And mm, so that yeah. was my process of writing in the podcast. If I could do that, if we could have a conversation that makes you and the audience aware of your passions and what you've suffered through to get there, if I can reflect with you about that purpose and the reason that you did it, and then talk about just like this podcast, what are some practical steps that helped you get there? That was going to help me grow. And I knew that anybody else that listened would also be able to inspire special things based off of that formula. And so after about episode 72, that's when I really started to narrow in that niche and focus more on education, mm -hmm. focus more on adult SEL. And that's when I started contacting you and other leaders in the field like yourself. Well, let's go back, Trey, because you talked about suffering for your passion. And prior to that, we talked about some of the challenges that students were facing in terms of anxiety and depression, this notion of resilience, this notion of, I'm going to quote Viktor Frankl poorly on this, but he said that a man who has a sense of the why can endure any what, right? And he's mm -hmm. talking about time mm -hmm. and the Holocaust and concentration camps. So let's just 
take a second on this. The role of suffering, greatness, aspirations. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about how you came to that idea and what it means in terms of your path moving forward. So a great question, David. And I don't know if it's Victor Frankl or somebody else, but they said, if you know why, you can endure anyhow. You know, so understanding passion, I've always been a passionate person. Football was my first passion. It took me to a scholarship to play football. It gave me opportunities to, to really change my life. And as I started in that, my next passion was speaking. In speaking, I got really close to words and understanding what do these words mean. So as I was writing a speech and formalizing my business, I've got about 50 journals downstairs that are over the last eight years, just all my ideas and brain dumps. But as I was going through, I would craft these speeches and I wanted to know the root word behind it. So when I say passion, what does that really mean? I want to use the right words. And so when I said passion and said to suffer, I was like, wow, that's crazy. You know, because one, a lot of people don't know what they're passionate about. And then two, when stuff gets hard, a lot of people quit. But that's why you got to have passion so you can suffer through it. And when you're willing to suffer through it, you start to learn and connect the dots going backwards. That's where the reflection comes in. Life doesn't make sense moving forward. When I look at my next five years, I have a great vision. I consider myself a visionary. I can see what it's going to look like, but I can't quite connect the dots. But when I look backwards in my life and I look backwards over time, I can see patterns. I can see that football was a passion. Public speaking was a passion. Service was a passion for generations in my family. And so I'm starting to see patterns and connect the dots. And so through reflection, I find my purpose because... People say, I don't know what I'm passionate about. I ain't passionate about nothing. No, actually, let's let's really think about it. Let's really dig in and, and figure out what this is about. Because when you know what you're going to suffer for, the next thing to find is your reason why you're willing to suffer for it. Trey, why have I dedicated my life to education and well-being? I think part of that is because, again, my dad, my grandfather, and my family going back to 1867 with our family Bible were people of service. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I have a privilege as a Black man with a family history this strong Mm -hmm. to serve. Mm -hmm. That's a long and strong reason to do so. Additionally, I know my strengths, facilitation, presentation, implementation. Mm. Some people might think those are all the same. I think they're very different. And honing my skills and learning through this craft really helped me figure out how, how do I just not do this for me? That's success. How do I help other people find this passion? How do I help other people find this purpose and process? That's significant. And Mm -hmm. so success is for me, significance is for other people. And it's not enough. Personally, I need a reason that's greater than me to get out of bed. And, you know, education, people, young people are the reason why I do it. So having spoken to all these folks and helped them really think about and link their passion to the things that they're willing to push through, what are some themes that that you can share with my listeners that you've had from your guests in the Dash podcast? And what are some big ideas that you want to put out that you've learned? You know, one of the biggest that I've seen is one was called the trickle down effect. There was an episode. This was early when I started getting into education, a school leader, I believe, in North Carolina. He talked about the trickle down effect and the impact of him as a school leader and how that trickles down to the rest of his community. And that's one that I think has repeated itself constantly time over time about Mm -hmm. leadership. And I think one of the most important pieces, David, is before we are educators, principals, all these titles were people, man. Mm-hmm. for people. And when you think about people, you have to take care of yourself first. I can remember another interview I did a couple months ago where he basically, he, he came out and flat out said, I was a bad principal. I thought that I could run in there and put my foot down and run the show. 
and I almost got kicked out. So I think the vulnerability of school leaders and the accountability of school leaders to own and be vulnerable with the mistakes that they've made has truly, at least in my mind, helped me feel more comfortable making my mistakes. And the fact that other people will come on the show and talk about not just the mistake, but how they corrected it, how they grew from, again, that passion, purpose process. You're mm -hmm. taking me through while you're in education. You're talking to me about your sufferings, and then you're showing me the process of how you got out, especially mm -hmm. right now, David, in the pandemic. If you didn't have SEO practices in place prior to the pandemic, you probably struggled through that. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you probably had a really hard time through the pandemic. Yeah. But if you had some of these best practices in place, like Many of the school leaders that I interviewed have, and many of them didn't, it was going to be more of a struggle for yourself, and that trickles down to your school community. So I think the idea of taking care of yourself, understanding yourself, and your well-being as a leader trickles down to your staff community is probably the biggest takeaway that I have, and it's very constant. I mean, we have equity, leadership. Those are really big topics, culture, climate, those are the things. That's typically what stuff comes down to. But then the more personal approach and aspect is for the leaders, taking that accountability, being vulnerable and sharing their stories, their failures through that process. And then giving those tidbits of what best practices they have. One of the simple best practices, David. Yeah. Somebody said, I never call parents when kids do something wrong. And I only call parents when they do something right. It's like, yo, that is a really easy solution. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Because most mm -hmm. times when you call home, you just know it's a problem. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So why not call home when Johnny's doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing? Why not focus on what's strong instead of focusing on what's wrong? I want to take this back because you talked about taking care of yourself, but you also had a very clear sense of your history and mm -hmm. the role that your history and your lineage plays out in who you are and what you care about. And so I want to think about how we contextualize our leadership practices in our sense of self. And I want to ground our sense of self in where we come from and where we're going. So yeah. speak a little bit more about how your sense of who you've come from helps you to ground yourself in who you are. Great question, David. And thank you for going back to that. So I actually grew up in two homes. I grew up with my mom for the first 10 years of my life, single mother, just me and her for a long time. We you know, we lost our home sometimes. We moved every two years. Mm -hmm. If I asked my mom for some money, it was all she had left. Mm -hmm. But she was so rich in love. She was so rich in spirit. She was so rich in faith. And the woman is never sad. She doesn't frown. So mm -hmm. I learned so much from her. And at the same time, as I got older and my dad, my dad was always in my life. He's one of my role models and everything. But when I moved into his house, when I was about 15, I started to really understand the legacy. And, mm -hmm. and so my dad was judge for 20 years. He's been a lawyer for 10 years. On my dad's side, we've been going to college since 1955. My uncle went to Mississippi Valley State in 1955, seven years after it opened. Tommy was known as the meanest man in Mississippi and, and never pulled, I'm going to say what he did and what he didn't do, but he was a mean man. Okay? A mean, not mean like mean, but like mean, like mugshot mean, like not. <laughs> mugshot mean, yeah. Short story, he had a wife and he went to jail for reasons mm -hmm. I don't want anybody to get demonetized, but he had a mistress who worked in the governor's mansion and ended up getting pardoned from his jail sentence and then moved up to Indiana. So that's how we got there. But to your point in contextualizing, that's a lot of history, David. That's right. I know very few people of color that can open up a family Bible and see their family's name from 1867. 
Very few. I mean, my, my grandpa, when I hear the stories of my family, Big Bank Bob was his name. And he would he worked at the Hummer plant and he would cash people's checks every Friday for two dollars in the change. It was always hustling. It was always service. But even that mm-hmm. would solve the problem so that people could go straight to the boat after work. So he got mm-hmm. the two dollars in the change. You don't have to stop at the bank. You get to go. He cut grass. He shoveled snow. He gave out loans. Everything was just so service oriented for him. Mm-hmm. The same dad and I just felt all that from the love in my mom's house and the service mm-hmm. at my dad's house that mm-hmm. was a beautiful compilation to give me the best of both worlds and understand to be rich and to be poor to be wealthy and to be you know not wealthy whatever the case is it really gave me a, a well-rounded perspective at 18 years old to be able to take some of these lessons from life and apply them in my personal and professional career so it feels like this notion of taking these lessons from your life, ever since you went to the South Carolina School for Science and Mathematics, and you were looking at your young people, to your ability to think about the podcast and how do you elevate your voice to create value. And I just want to name that and the voices of others to create value. It's been this notion of life and how mm-hmm. do you succeed and thrive at life. So I feel like that's this natural kind of intersection between who you are and social and emotional learning very active in the space. Tell me a little bit more about how you got to SEL, that that language, what motivates you, inspires you about the field of social and emotional learning. I mean, how are we going to navigate through some of the challenges that we've seen with regards to high quality SEL? So, you know, going back to that governor school time, that's when I was not even introduced to SEL, but we were charged with developing a co-curricular development model, recognizing the needs of our students. We looked at core competencies that we thought would be important for our kids. And one of those was cultural competencies. One of those was like health and fitness. And there was a couple more that I can't remember right now. But it's actually after that when I started my business. We started the podcast and business around the same time. And I went to church the first day and the pastor had a charter school. He invited me and I started to observe classrooms for a month. I would go once a week and I would just literally spend the day sitting in classrooms, watching teachers, watching students. Without, I don't have an education background. I don't have an education degree. So I was just looking with my psychology degree at what I saw. And it was very clear to me that the teachers were speaking a language that students didn't understand. And they didn't know why. There was like a lack of awareness, I felt like, from the teacher's lens on how to truly connect with the students. And to me, that was the reason that there was a disconnect in terms of academics. There was a disconnect in terms of relationships and things. And so from there, I was challenged by the director of the school to say, okay, Trey, find a solution. That's right. What are we going to do? And this, again, I'm 24 years old, two years education experience, started the business last month, and you telling me to find a solution. It's like, okay. Like, at first, I was like, okay, we could read a book. You know, I was like, okay, that's not it, Trey. Then I did research, and I found Castle, and I found the school guide to implementation. That was probably the core things that I found, and that changed everything. Once I found Castle, and once I found these assessments I use that are called DISC and Emotional Intelligence Assessment, like, okay, we got a solution here. And... I adopted the school guide, and we started a systematic implementation for SEL. As a matter of fact, David, even before that, we actually spent about a year focused on the adults first. We mm-hmm. started to assess the adults and look at their communication skills, find out what gaps that they had, and put like teacher intervention programs in place to help them communicate more effectively. And it was actually the next school year that we adopted Castle and adopted a program and started to go through the strategic implementation process. And so... That was a huge light bulb because it took 
all of these things that I had been practicing with no real framework or mindset and gave me a structure. I was like, yo, this is wild. Like you telling me this is a step-by-step process. And then the systems started to come into play. So it's not just about SEL. I tell people we, we practice SEL every day. My job is to try to get you to do it with intention, to do mm-hmm. it on purpose. So if most you do it on accident. I'm not going to say most people, everybody practices SEL on accident or they're not aware of it. I want you to do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. And so that was the MO and the goal to practice on purpose. And the studies show like just being aware mm-hmm. of the competencies and of your skills helps you improve them. And so that was big for me. And with Castle on the systematic approach, we did it. I, we did that for about four years. We followed the school guide and we adopted probably three different programs to make sure that we got one that was right for our school. And I'll say too, David, I love Castle. I still reference Castle to this day. I want to do a lot more stuff with Castle. But what I found as a solution for me and my niece was the adult SEL component. And that was like focus area 2A or 2B. And that was the only thing that just didn't make sense to me. That's the one problem I see. And I feel like we could spend a year focused on adult capacity and competencies before we even introduce SEL to the kids. Because what I find now, even in practice, and when I'm calling schools or districts, I'm going to deliver a training, folks don't recognize the relevance of SEL for themselves. And only think that SEL has something to do with students. I don't even need to, I don't see students. I don't work with students. I only work with adults primarily. And yeah, we talk about classroom practices and implementation on, on how you can use your SEL skills in class, but I'm focused on you, the person first. And when you understand your strengths, emotional intelligence says it's the understanding of yourself first so that you can understand the people around you. So we got to focus on you first. And there's so much baggage, bias, and blind spots that we have as people how can I ask you to deliver this program? You've been trained for years on your subject. You have not been trained on SEL curriculum. Why would I give you a curriculum to implement when you don't have these skills yourself? This is not just about challenges and complaints. As your principal told you, you got a solution for this. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah sir. So that was, that, that was the solution. So as I saw that gap and I looked at the implementation process, okay, we adopt the program, we build our team, but this is the gap and our educator competency, our adult competency. So let's bump that up. Let's move that forward and prioritize investing in our educator well-being to have that trickle-down effect that we spoke of earlier on students. And so that was my area of focus where I love the whole framework and then we focused on that adult SEL piece. And then moving forward, I'm looking to continue expanding that research on investing in educator well-being. We've got some data that shows some statistical significance in terms of natural versus adapted communication styles with the assessments we use, in addition to trying to look at organizational emotional intelligence scores. So a lot of good stuff. Castle has been great for me, a wonderful solution for me, and it was super helpful in finding what I felt to be that gap in competencies for adults to just bump that up and then continue following you know, the rest of the implementation process. Well, Trey, you've been an educator, you've been a podcaster, you've been an entrepreneur, you've been a husband, you've been a father. Tell me, what is the innovation education you've been the most proud of? It's got to be adult SEL, David. And investing in educator well-being, we've been talking about it for a long time, started with the students, and now focusing and being able to see the impact that it's had on adults through data. I was able to present at the Black School Psychology Network Conference two weeks ago, And the feedback that I got from doctors, from practitioners, from people in the field about this research 
-hmm. was a big confidence boost and a note to go in the right direction. And even with Castle and some of the other programs that I'm working with, adult SEL has been a priority and has become a larger priority since the pandemic started. The new SEL exchange coming up in November at Castle yeah. is going to be focused on adult SEL. I and I've submitted an application there. I registered for the four-part, you know, webinar series. So I truly commend Castle. It seems like, you know, maybe that's not necessarily a gap, but just recognizing, hey, this needs to be a larger priority. That's me as well. So I've applied to the SEL exchange. I'll be submitting a manuscript to the Castle's SEL journal about the research as well. And, you know, the schools that I've been working with are outperforming their local school districts. They are bridging gaps in terms of well-being. I want to dig more into that and understand how we can help people be the best version of themselves. From Indiana to South Carolina, you have a legacy of service, a legacy of a person who's focused on passion and willing to figure out how to get that passion into purpose. And on behalf of the folks and the listeners on this program here with Innovations in Education, Trey, I appreciate your time here, and I look forward to seeing the great work that you do in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate it as well. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Innovations in Education, where we bring education leaders who have made things work in the education sector. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you can hear more great content around innovations in education. I've been your host, David Adams. Have a great day. Thank you.